0: This episode is brought to you by IVP. It's hard to change the world, but when we work in community with others, God helps us achieve the impossible. In his book, When We Stand, activist Terence Lester teaches us how to see
1: the bigger picture and discern the unique ways we can contribute. Through communal effort, we can discover how our togetherness testifies to the gospel's transformative power. As a listener of this podcast,
0: you can receive When We Stand for 25% off when you use the promo code IVPOD25, that's IVPOD25, at IVPress.com. This is IVP most Christians, they think, yeah, our job as the church is to make our nation Christian. That's never been our job, right? Jesus was adamant. He did not come to create Christian empire. The United States of America is not, it never has been, nor will it ever be Christian. That is not the goal of the church. The church is so far removed from that from understanding where it actually is, that it's almost impossible to have that conversation. The first thing it has to do is it has to get out of bed with empire. And until the church gets out of bed with empire, it has very little to offer the nation.
1: Welcome back to The Disruptors, a podcast from InterVarsity Press. I'm your host, Caitlin Schess. Today we're talking about the relationship between history, community, and identity with writer and activist Mark Charles. We discuss the way that the stories we tell about ourselves and our communities shape our sense of identity and our relationships. We talk about why it can be so challenging for white Americans to be honest about our history. And Mark offers counsel for people struggling to have honest and faithful conversations in their churches and families. Mark Charles is one of the leading authorities on the 15th century doctrine of discovery and its influence on U.S. history and intersection with modern-day society. He's a public speaker, writer, and consultant who teaches about American history, race, culture, and faith in order to forge a path of healing and conciliation for our nation. Mark co-authored, along with Soong Chan-Ra, the book Unsettling Truths, The Ongoing Dehumanizing Legacy of the Doctrine of Discovery in 2019 with IVP. Mark ran as an independent candidate for the U.S. presidency in the 2020 election, which we also discuss in this wide-ranging and convicting conversation. I look forward to y'all hearing it. Mark, thank you so much um, for joining us today. It's really nice to meet you.
0: Thank you. It's very good to be here with you as well.
1: So let's start off. um, If you could just introduce yourself to this audience, a lot of the the times that I have heard you speak, um, it's been helpful for the conversation that I'm hoping for us to have today to learn a little bit about your background and help us think a little bit more about what I'm hoping we'll talk about today, which is kind of how our history and our understanding of our own history personally and communally can help us think better about our political lives and maybe bring us some insight into, into a healthier way forward.
0: Sure, well, let me start just with my traditional introduction. So In our Navajo culture, when we introduce ourselves, we always give our four clans. We're matrilineals of people, and our identities come from our mother's mother. My mother's mother is American of Dutch heritage and that's why I say Tsinbuke Dne. N'ah. Loosely translated that means I'm from the wooden shoe people. My second clan, my father's mother, is Ta Higlini, which is the waters that flow together. My third clan, my mother's father, is also at Sinbake And my fourth clan, my father's father, is Toto which is the Bitterwater clan. It's one of the original clans of our Navajo people. I moved from with my family from the Navajo Nation about nine years ago, and we moved to what's now called Washington, D.C. But these are the traditional lands of the Piscataway. And so I want to honor the Piscataway as the hosts of the lands where I'm living. I want to thank them for their stewardship of these lands, and I, I just want to state how humbled I am to be living on the on their lands. That's who I am, and that's that's uh, what I will bring into the conversation here.
1: Yeah, I've heard you give that introduction before, and it's so interesting to me because I feel like most of the context that I am in, I'm um, a doctoral student, so I'm like in academia, and people will introduce themselves and say, "This is what I study. This is the work that I do," mm-hmm. and it's not it's in a certain sense completely disconnected from the family that they come from or the land that they were born on and i'm just curious to hear a little more from you about that relationship between our own histories and our identity because i was listening to an interview that you did um with Preston Sprinkle and he was saying like i you know i had no choice in where i was born that has nothing to do with me i don't even really think about it and the whole time i kept thinking like oh, that seems like maybe that's part of our problem is the idea that we just don't come from anywhere. We have no connection to our history and our background. Can you talk a little bit about how those things are related? Because I think a lot of people listening might relate to what Preston said of, look, I don't really think much about where I come from, either in my own family or kind of the larger community that I come from. And I I, I have a sense that that you know create some problems <laughs> for us that we don't have any connection to that history or where we come from.
0: Western culture is hyper individualistic. And so the whole goal right is to move your kids out of the house and get them independent on their own and live as a as an individual in the world. Extended family is not nearly as crucial and especially the land where you live or the land you came from is not nearly as crucial. So that's western culture. Native culture is much more communal, much more tied to your family, as well as tied to the land you live on. And so, you know, if I were to go around a room and I I say this frequently, if I were to go into a, a Western classroom or a Western audience and say, introduce yourself, tell me who you are, I would get their titles, I would get their degrees, I would get, you know, all of those types of things. If you go into a native audience and say, tell me who you are, you'll get their families, you'll get their homes, you'll get the lands they are from, you'll get their relatives and their ancestors. So on top of the hyper individualism of Western culture that identifies you primarily based on your occupation, you also have the fact that most white Americans. As well as most Europeans, have long lost the indigenous roots of where they're from. Mm. So when I introduce myself, Navajo is matrilineal. We identify by our mother's mother. My mother's mother is American of Dutch heritage. I could just say I'm white, right? I could say Bilagana Nishle, I'm a white American. Um, but I say Tsinbakidana be because my mother's of Dutch heritage. Her, 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 Identity as a white woman didn't start when her ancestors got off the boat, mm-hmm. right? They came from somewhere. They came from Holland. Holland mm-hmm. are known for their clumping, right? And so mm-hmm. I, I chose oh. with my family to identify myself traditionally as the wooden shoe people. Now, the challenge with that, right? My, my mother or all of my Dutch relatives, they can't necessarily go home to Holland, Right they when they left for whatever reason whether it was famine or whether it was the 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 prosperity offered by the united states or something or whatever they, for whatever reason they left they have long cut ties with there and so they can't go back right they they can't like that's not an option of i'm going to go back to holland because i mean they could but they most likely have very few relationships there They have no ties to the land there anymore. And even the Holland, right? I mean, the the Dutch have a proverb that says, God created the world, but the Dutch made Holland. (laughs) You know, (laughs) a third of Holland's land is land reclaimed from the ocean through their massive dike system, right? So they have a very, even where they're from, they have a very colonial relationship with the land they're living on. Right, that's not indigenous at all. To re, I mean, to, I, I remember I was I was with some friends. And we were actually visiting the Netherlands, and they took us to see the dikes. And the dikes, right there, massive. They're they're truly a huge technological feat. And I remember standing there, looking up at this dike, talking to my friend, and I said, "How does it feel to live in a country?" where I'm not even saying it's a natural disaster. I'm saying if nature just goes back to its equilibrium,
2: mm.
0: right? A third of your country is underwater. It's like you live on an airplane, right? Where if gravity eventually wins, you crash, right? I mean, that that's if you live in an airplane, eventually you'll probably die from the airplane, right? Because if, and so it's the same thing, like if you're living in a place, you've made a home, you've built a permanent home In a place where if nature just does what nature does, your home is destroyed and your country is wiped out, essentially. And what was fascinating was literally a week later, Katrina hit New Orleans. Mm. And one of the things that made the devastation of Katrina so horrible was the levees failed. And so massive parts of the city were destroyed, right? And so... Europeans, through war, through colonization, through even their own advancements in technology, have long ago, not just when they came to America beginning in the 1400s, but even prior to that, were in the process of or had already lost their indigenous connection to their lands. They were no longer had a sustainable relationship with the environment they were living in. They are already working to exploit it, to capitalize on it, to colonize it, and then to conquer it and move and, and broaden and so on and so forth. So one of the things when I look at the challenges we face as a nation is we have 300 million undocumented immigrants, right? Most of them from Europe, and they're living here like they own the place,
2: mm.
0: right? They had a doctrine of discovery: we're human, you're savages. You can't. You only occupy the land. We have the title to it because we're fully human, and we can civilize it, and blah blah blah. And so they came, and right, so this is why, as recently as 2005, you know, I I have a TEDx talk that talks about this, where the doctrine of discovery is used as recently as 2005 as establishing the legal precedent for land titles. So when when the U.S. government wants to justify why they have the title to the land and not Native Nations, they don't go back to a treaty and say you gave us the right. They don't go back even to a war and say we conquered you they go back and say, we have a doctrine of discovery and therefore we're the title holders. That's the precedent for land titles. And so what that does is it creates an incredible insecurity in white America. Right? This is why the the -the over-the-top response to critical race theory and to you know, the if you want to get white people screaming at each other, just bring up immigration reform. There is this hyper, over-the-top response to these issues. Why? Because white Americans are incredibly insecure in living in these lands, right? Even the creation story that white Christians have mm-hmm. that comes from the book of Genesis, that isn't even their creation story, right? Creation stories, are. there's not like there's one creation story and this is how it happened. Or like every group of people has a creation story. And the purpose of creation story is not to create historical narrative. It's to help you understand your relationship to creator and your relationship to the land you're living on. And so most creation stories include local landmarks. So if you read the book of Genesis, right, the creation story, the second one in the book and there is two, most people aren't even aware of that. There's two versions of the creation story. One where humans are created first and one where they're created last. But the second creation story actually mentions by name the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, just like our creation story of our novel people mentions our four sacred mountains and the rivers and the places throughout the Southwest, right? And so so white Americans have a deep insecurity in the land they have because they know, they're well aware their creation story didn't happen here. They're very aware that they have no connection to land whatsoever, where they have a legitimate right to land. Again, they go back to the doctrine of discovery legally, even just 20 years, 15 years ago. So this is why we have these explosions where. It's not just Texas and Oklahoma, both the left and the right, mm-hmm. where they're, whenever you start to wrestle with the status quo, it's like, no, we can't change that because what if we get canceled? What if we lose our land? What if we get sent? You know, they're the most terrifying thing to white America is that a native person would look at them and say, go home, mm. right? Because they don't have one. They can't go back to Europe. They would not be accepted as from there the only way they legitimize their presence here is not through a treaty which is about relationship
2: mm-hmm.
0: it's through we're human and you're not therefore we have the right to be here over you and so this is where I, I i tell people all the time right i mean i have something the native community has something that white america for all of its myth of superiority and claim of their own exceptionalism, they can't buy, they can't steal, and they can't take it from me, which is, I have a legitimacy here. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: My people's creation story took place here. And that gives me a level of both security as well as authority Right, this is why white America is so intent on doing their DNA test. Right, where am I from? Mm, yeah. <laughs> As a native, I have no, I have no inclination to take a DNA test. Why? Because I can tell you who my ancestors are. Yeah. I have the oral history. Right, it's gone back. And so this is where, I mean, in 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 the book we wrote on Selling truths, we talk about the perpetration induced traumatic stress that is white America is experiencing at a a multi-generational and a communal level, but that's a big part of it, is there's this deep insecurity of not only do white Americans not know where they're from, they can't even go back to where they think they might be from, because all they have is, uh, their only connection is possibly a DNA test, but if they go back, they have no relationship. And if you don't have a relationship, you you really don't have anything.
1: Yeah. I, what I appreciate so much about your work is helping us understand how important the stories we tell about ourselves and our communities and our history is. Because what I heard you just describing is like people are so uncomfortable hearing some of what you say about the truth of the history of, of this land, of these communities in part because we we hold so tightly to these really false stories about ourselves and our communities. And I mean, I'm even thinking about like, you know, in the city that I live in, there's a lot of conversations about our racial history here that make people really uncomfortable, in part because we don't want to believe that the city that that we live in, or for some people who were born here, that we just inherit some of the, the injustice that comes from our history, even to the the fact of like, well, the communities that we live in, the neighborhoods we live in are, are segregated. And I might not have chosen that, but I come into this community and I inherit that story. And that shapes the community that I'm in and the relationships that I'm in. And I, you mentioned this a second ago, but can you talk a little bit more about why people respond so strongly? Um to this history, and maybe even a little bit about how you have learned to respond to that. Because I think a lot of people listening are probably hearing what you're saying. Some of them might respond really negatively to it. I think some of them may have read your book, may have read other books, and they have learned about this history. But the difficult thing for them is they want to have a conversation about this history with their communities, with people in their churches or their neighborhoods. But they have seen what you have seen, which is how strongly negatively people react to it. And they want to see change. They want to see a better relationship with the history of the place that they live, but they don't know how to achieve that because they've seen how strongly people's walls go up, how negatively they react, and it sort of starts to feel just impossible to have a conversation about it.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, uh, what, what happens is we don't have a proper understanding of the role trauma plays. In the dialogues we're having, mm. so when I say trauma, right when I, I use the word trauma," most people immediately think of what's called PTSD, a post-traumatic stress or a post-traumatic stress disorder. It's an individual diagnosis that comes from a single horrifying event, right? So you get assaulted, you can get PTSD, you're in a battle in a war, and you can get PTSD. Um, it affects you mentally, physically, emotionally, relationally kind of this all-encompassing event. Um, But it's an individual diagnosis coming from a single horrifying event. Now, there's another type of PTSD called a complex PTSD. Complex PTSD is fairly similar to a PTSD, except instead of coming from a single event, it comes from a series of events. So if you get PTSD from being assaulted, you get complex PTSD from living in an abusive relationship. Mm -hmm. If you get PTSD from being in a battle, you get complex PTSD from living in a war zone. Now, psychologists have observed that the symptoms of a complex PTSD can be seen generationally. So you can see it in the children and grandchildren of the people who experience the complex PTSD. They don't quite know how it gets there, but they have observed it being passed down generationally. Then there's a third trauma called HTR. HTR stands for historical trauma. It was the first, first observed by Maria Yellow Horse Braveheart, who was a Native American working with boarding school survivors of, of Native boarding schools. And she observed that there was a dissatisfaction within this broader community. And so she came up with a diagnosis of, of HTR, or historical trauma. And again, historical trauma is not an individual diagnosis. It, it's It's how they find, they look at the dissatisfaction in this larger community. And so I refer to historical trauma, right? Just for simplicity as a multi-generational communal manifestation of a complex PTSD. And so by understanding trauma, right? Understanding PTSD, complex PTSD and historical trauma, I can prepare for my audiences of color. Mm -hmm. I can prepare that. If I am speaking to Native audiences or African American audiences or other audiences, right, that they will have either one or even all three of a PTSD, a complex PTSD, and a historical trauma, not only in the room, but sometimes even in the same person. Mm-hmm whether it's boarding schools and Indian removal or Jim Crow and segregation or mass incarceration or internment camps or the Holocaust, right? All of these things create these traumas in our communities of color. And so if I'm aware of those traumas, I can prepare for that so I don't trigger my audience. And if they do react, I kind of know where it's coming from and how to respond to it better. But again, as you said, the problem with these conversations is not that the people of color are throwing them off kilter. It's mm-hmm, white people. Mm-hmm. And the challenge with that is when we talk about our nation's racial history, we immediately put white people into one of two categories. Either they're racist or you're fragile. Right? Those are the two sim the, the, the two categories. So and so right if if you're racist simply because you lack pigmentation in your skin, it means anytime you're engaging in a conversation around these issues. I have to view you as a threat and either attack you or at least protect myself against you. It also means you have nothing of substance to add to the dialogue because just you lack pigmentation of your skin, therefore you're racist. So that's not helpful. Now, there's also the category of fragility, right? You're fragile. After George Floyd got lynched publicly, Robin D'Angelo's book, White Fragility, shot to the top of the time's bestseller list and has sat there for months, if not even a few years. And Robin has a lot of good insights into the kind of the psyche behind whiteness. But I struggle with her, her paradigm of fragility. Because when something's fragile, I have a limited number of options of how to treat it. If I'm helping you move, and you have a box that's taped up and it's marked fragile, right? I have two choices when I see that box. I can pick it up gently and carefully lay it into the truck, or I can ignore the sign, pick it up however I want, maybe even throw it into the truck, possibly breaking what's in there because I'm not treating it with the respect the sign tells me to treat it with. Those are my two options. What I realize in my work is those aren't helpful when I engage with white people. It's not helpful to just assume everyone who's white is racist or white people are fragile and I have to write be be treat them one of these two ways. And so as I began talking more about this history and observing more of my audiences and especially tracking how my white audiences were responding I saw what appeared to be trauma in my white audiences but I had no place to put it. It wasn't a PTSD. It wasn't a complex PTSD. It wasn't historical trauma. It didn't. I didn't like the, the the diagnosis of fragility, and so I didn't know how to treat and even prepare for my white audiences. And then I found this book, and it's it's by Rachel McNair. It's called Perpetration-Induced Traumatic Stress. And she was studying what she calls the psychology of killing. If society gives you a right to kill, right? At some level, you're a police officer, you're a soldier, you're a drone pilot, you're in certain medical professions, even you're a good white guy at the mall with a gun, right? And society says you can kill someone. What she wanted to know was what does that do psychologically to the person who's taking these lives? And she found it creates what she called a perpetration-induced traumatic stress or PITS. Now, she, in her research, she looked at a broad study of Vietnam veterans. She looked at this quote by Socrates, who said, the doer of injustice is more miserable than the sufferer. And she found that this Pitts, Perpetration of somatic Stress, had all the symptoms of a PTSD, except a PTSD would afflict the victim, and Pitts would afflict the perpetrator. So when I found her book... I immediately, cause I was looking for a way to understand my white audiences. And I already thought I was observing trauma in their reactions, but I had no place to put that. And so once I found her book, I was like, oh, this could be it, right? Not just at an individual level, but if PTSD has a multi-generational and communal manifestation at a complex level that we call historical trauma, might not pits also have a multigenerational communal manifestation at a complex level, which is the trauma I'm observing in my white audiences, right? People who are saying, I didn't choose to live here. I didn't oppress these people. I didn't own slaves. I didn't do that. And I'm like, but you're still reacting the same way. You're reacting in a, trauma, in a trauma-influenced manner. And so I now prepare for my white audiences as another group of traumatized people. Knowing that things I could say will trigger them, right? And so the first symptom of trauma is shock and denial. So normally it's your friends, your family, your coworkers, people around you who observe your trauma before you're even aware of it. When, when you're traumatized, your body goes into fight or flight, it begins to shut down, you go into a state of denial, right? You're protecting yourself, you're protecting your psyche from this harsh reality that you experience. And so you go into into shock and denial. And so maybe your friends or your family convinced you, hey, you're you're displaying some symptoms of trauma. You should go see a counselor. So you go into a counselor. Now, when you go into a counselor, right, they're going to just ask you these very broad questions. They're going to get you to talk and try to get you to to talk about some things. And what they're doing is they're looking for your triggers. Mm. So a trigger is a sight or a sound or a smell that brings you out of reality and back into the chaos of the moment of when the trauma occurred, right you begin to to your your heart speeds up, you begin to breathe differently, you get a bitter taste in your mouth because you have adrenaline flowing through your body, and if it's not checked, you will soon go into a fight or flight mode right where you just you you'll begin to just go into this very binary mode of I either have to fight or I have to flee because I have to protect myself and so. If you're talking to your counselor and something you're talking about triggers you, let's say your trigger is butterflies. So a swarm of butterflies flies by the window, right? And you get triggered.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: You begin to get agitated. Your heart speeds up. Your counselor's observing this, right? Yeah. They're seeing it happen. And soon you're in a full blown episode and you're having an episode right in front of him in the counseling office. Now, if your counselor's worth their salt, right? If they're, if they're any good, they're going to let you have your episode. They're going to keep themselves safe, and make sure you're safe. Most likely, they're not going to go out and exterminate the butterflies. (laughs) They might close the window, right? Mm -hmm. But they're not going to exterminate the butterflies. And you can believe that the next time you talk with them, either at the end of that session or the next session, they're going to say, so we should probably talk about butterflies, right? Because that was the trigger. That was something that triggered the disconnect between your psyche and your reality. And so you have to explore that. When we treat white people and we view their episodes as either based on racism or based on fragility, we're gonna never have the deeper conversation about what the trigger is. Mm-hmm. We're never gonna go back and say, Okay, that was weird, right? We should talk not you can't talk about it in the moment, right? You can't talk about when they're in fight or flight, because they're they've lost their ability to kind of cognitively process through an issue like that. So you have to come back once they've that's subsided. The problem is when we treat them as racist or fragile, we never come back for the follow-up conversation. And so I, I tell people, right, I'm not trying to convince white people they're traumatized. That's not my job. I just treat them as traumatized because my whole goal is how can I teach you this history if you're gonna keep disrupting my teaching and blowing up the meeting, right? By yelling at me or storming out or whatever else, right? You're gonna disrupt the meeting to the point where we can't even have it anymore, can't have the conversation anymore. So we never get to teach the history. We never get to actually talk about what happened. What I found is by understanding white Americans are another group of traumatized people. Now I'm very, very clear here. White people are not victims of trauma, right? This is a multi-generational communal manifestation of a perpetration-induced traumatic stress. This comes from something they're standing on and something they're actively benefiting from. And so, but by understanding that they're traumatized, it helps me create tools now to actually keep them in their seats, mm-hmm. so I can teach the lesson I'm trying to I'm trying to teach and to prevent them from disrupting me because now I, I can understand what their triggers are, I can respond to their triggers better, and I can get through my content. Whereas before, they would disrupt it and it would, just, it would end, it would end the, the whole event.
1: Do you ever feel as though life is nothing but chaos and complication and you just wish for some kind of system or structure that can reorient your days and weeks? the answer might come by reshaping simple habits in a way that leads to a life of flourishing. In The Common Rule, Justin Whitmell Early shares about the four daily and four weekly habits that helped him emerge from a time of deep anxiety to one of purpose and meaning. Stay tuned until the end of the episode to find out how you can get a 25% discount on The Common Rule at ivypress.com. That's so helpful because I think what you just described is something a lot of people have seen either felt themselves or seen in other people of just like, oh, something about this triggered you and you're not in a place where we can have a conversation anymore. It's a totally different mindset. But also I love the like you the goal is to be in the right conditions where you can return to the conversation and you can actually move forward from that. Um, but you have to understand what's happening with people because I do think sometimes, especially white people who learn some of this history and want other white people in their communities to hear about it. It's like when someone else has that really strong negative reaction, we have a strong negative reaction because I think part of it is I I feel like I've moved beyond that. Like I've convinced myself I've arrived and now I don't have the kind of reaction you're having. So I have a strong reaction to your strong reaction. And then it just nothing ends up happening. There's no moving forward from that.
0: Because even though you may have you may have thought through it, you still haven't dealt with the trauma, right? And so their triggering triggers you. And that's why if you want to get a group of white people screaming at each other, just go in and say, hey, let's talk about immigration reform or let's talk about, you know, terrorism or let's talk about all land titles, right? And both sides within 10 minutes will be screaming at each other because they're triggering each other and neither one, neither side is aware what's going on. I mean, this is American politics, right? This is what happens. So candidates learn how to both trigger and then soothe their audiences. And it doesn't go to the root of the problem. It says, well, I'm going to trigger you. I'm going to get you into this agitated state. And then I'm going to blame that on my yes. political opponent. Yes, yes are the opposing party. This is why the two-party system is so detrimental to the American psyche because it creates this binary and the solution is not we have deep problems the solution is the other party is doing this to you and you just have to get vote them out of office or you know whatever else you need to do. This is what happens when you have traumatized people trying to trigger other traumatized people. And no one's aware of what's going on and what they're doing. And so it creates this thing that can quickly snowball into the messes that we've seen, not just on January 6th, but at other points, right? After 9-11, we triggered ourselves into literally becoming the very thing we were fighting against. And now we're torturing people and we're keeping them in prison indefinitely and we're killing far more people around the globe than were killed on our land, right? And we, we basically became what we were saying we were fighting against because we triggered ourselves into these over-the-top reactions. We call them enhanced interrogations and everything else, but that's what we do because we've never wrestled with the trauma that exists on both sides of the aisle.
1: that's yeah, that's such a helpful description. And it's a good segue into I really also want to talk to you about uh, your presidential run in 2020 And part of the kind of goal of this whole season of the podcast is to help resource people who might be thinking, okay, I I have seen really poor models of engaging in political life in my own church, in my own community, especially nationally. I want to seek change in the community that I'm in. Um, I see the needs of vulnerable people in my community and I want to show up in like practical systemic ways. But I also am afraid that I will end up, as you just described, becoming the thing that I hated, that like the just involvement in the system will shape and form me in such a negative way that I go in seeking justice. And then somewhere along the way that I wasn't prepared for, I've become the thing that I hate. And I actually have have justified all sorts of evil for some supposed goal that I'm not even really sure what it is anymore. And so can you talk to us a little bit about your decision to to run an independent campaign, what you wanted to do with that, and maybe even specifically how you thought about, you know, what would be required for you as a person to do this and to, to remain healthy or to to stay accountable to others or to kind of have practices in place that, that could help you do it in a way that, that didn't cost you your soul.
0: Yeah, so the first thing I would say, right, is you have to understand the mindset of the church, first of all. And this is where, again, the binary we see in politics, that absolutely exists in the church. People on the left and right side, the liberal or conservative side of the church, are in the exact same place religiously that our nation is in politically. And the the thing that both sides agree on is this desire to create Christian empire, right? There's this desire of like, we just need to make our nation—the the solution to our problems is we have to make our nation more Christian. And so they now want to legislate their understanding of their theologies or their understanding—it doesn't matter if they're the left or the right. Both sides believe this. And both sides, they're so—both sides, the church is so deeply in bed with empire That it doesn't even know it's in bed with it, right? It's not even aware of that. Even the fact that we operate as nonprofits, right? Which what does that mean? That means we won't say certain things politically, right? (laughs) Because I mean, and it's like we. So the government buys our silence in some ways because it's like, yeah, we'll give you a tax break if you just don't say anything, right? And so the church loses its ability to be prophetic because of of the tax breaks that the government gives to it. So the church either thinks Christian empire is the goal or they're just not aware that they're participating in creating Christian empire. That's why the book on selling truths we wrote, it ended so abruptly. So after the 2016 election, Mm -hmm. you know, where, and my, my analysis of that election, right? We had Donald Trump running to make America great again and Hillary Clinton responding and saying, America's great already. Right. That was the message from the two sides. At, at the Democratic National Convention, Cory Booker is endorsing Hillary Clinton. And in his speech, he acknowledges that our Constitution excludes women. He acknowledges that it counts Africans as three-fifths of a person. He acknowledges our Declaration of Independence calls Native savages, right? He acknowledges all three of these things. And most national politicians never talk about them. So the fact that he acknowledges them is like I gave him a lot of credit for that. But then immediately after he said that, he said to our white audience, to the white audience at the DNC, but these things do not detract from America's greatness. Right now, Cory Booker's Black. He knows the history. I promise you, if he was in a closed-door meeting with Black leaders, he would not have said that. If he was in a closed-door meeting with women, he would not have said that. He was in a closed meeting with Dators. He would not have said that. The reason he said that is because he had presidential hopes. And if you want to be president, you have to get not only the money and the vote, but the support of white landowning men. And so if you want to get their support, you have to address their trauma and tell them how exceptional they are. And then even further at the, at in, in the in the presidential debates, right? In the debate, Hillary Clinton comes back and she not only says America's already great, but she doubles down and says America is great because America is good. And Donald Trump turns, looks directly at her and says, I agree with her.
2: Mm. I agree with
0: everything she just said. Right. So we thought in 2016 we were choosing between racism or anti-racism, right? White supremacy or anti-white supremacy. We weren't. What we were debating in the 2016 election was, do we want Donald Trump, the Republicans, to make us explicitly racist and sexist and white supremacists again? Or do we want the Hillary Clinton and the Democrats to keep our racism, sexism, and white supremacy implicit? That was the decision we were having. And we had Christians on both sides advocating for their political party. So this is where the church is so deeply embedded with the empire that it doesn't—it's not even aware it's embedded. That's why at the end of our book, we—we we decided my my co-author, I and Ra, after that election, our book originally was going to be a call to lament, a, a, a an address for the church to look at its history and lament. And after that election, not just because of Trump, right? And we didn't even elect Trump; he lost that election in the popular vote. But the Electoral College, he won the most votes there, so he won it there. So we elected implicit, and the Electoral College gave us explicit. And so what we decided was not just because of the Republicans, but because of the Democrats as well, we didn't need to just call the church to lament. We had to change the book into a very open and very public rebuke. Like, that's what we needed to do. And so that's what Unselling Truth became. It became an open and public rebuke of American Christianity and the American church for its bipartisan value to create Christian empire. And you see this, right, where you see both sides quoting their scriptures. I remember when I was, this was years ago, and there was a move for comprehensive and just immigration reform. Right. And I, I I went to a rally for a group called uh the immigration table or something like that. Um and right, they, they came out with a bookmark that had forty verses that they said advocated for God's value to treat the immigrant well. And one of their verses from the old testament said, Love God, obey his command. I forget the exact quote, but you know, love God, obey his command, and do this. Care for the immigrant, care for the widow, care for the immigrant, care for the poor. If you do these things, I will bless you in the land you are living. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: And I, I was at the meeting, right? I was there. And I said to the group, this is the evangelical immigration table, was what it was called. And I was there and they were sharing these verses. And I stood up and I said, You can't use those verses. That verse, specifically that one is God reaffirming the land covenant? And I said, absolutely, care for the victims. Absolutely, care for the poor. Care for the widows. Absolutely, help the migrants. But you cannot claim this promise. And the verse they included included the promise. I said, you are not God's chosen people, and this is not your promised land. There is nothing in the scriptures that say, if you do these things, God's going to bless you here. You don't have a land covenant with the God of Abraham. You stole and colonized and ethnically cleansed and committed genocide and built this land up through enslavement. This was by no stretch of the imagination the will of God. And so this is right where we're both sides quote these scriptures. And so when I ran, and I ran as an independent, a rule I kept in my head throughout the entire election was: if I ever advocate for a policy. And I was very open with people. I'm a Christian. I I didn't deny that at all. But I said, if I am ever advocating for a policy purely based on the fact that this is what the Bible says, or if I'm using the Bible to justify a policy that I'm advocating for, I should not be advocating for it, right? If I am trying to get our nation to write laws and to act in a way based on my faith tradition, and this is a diverse pluralistic nation we're trying to build here, and I want to compel them to follow and 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 base their laws on my scriptures, that's not what this nation's about. So if I can't make a, a common moral argument or a an ethical argument or something else, then I need to not make this argument. I can't be advocating for a policy if my argument is purely based on my religious beliefs or on my the scriptures that I read and that I adhere to. I mean, there's so many ways we could go with this conversation, but this is one thing I think most Christians, they think, yeah, our job as the, as the church is to make our nation Christian. That's never been our job, right? Jesus was adamant. He did not come to create Christian empire. Our job was never to make the nation Christian. I I tell audiences, the United States of America is not, it never has been, nor will it ever be Christian. That is not the goal of the church. And right, this is where, in our book, uh, I think it's chapters 4, where we look at the teachings of Augustine where he basically decides to collude with the heresy of Eusebius and Constantine, and he says, yeah, let's solidify this Christian empire notion, this Christian Rome idea that we have. And he begins to write theologies that prop that up and build that up. And so, yeah, this is where I'm like, yeah, the church is so far removed from that from understanding where it actually is, that it's almost impossible to have that conversation. The first thing it has to do is it has to get out of bed with empire, right? And and until the church gets out of bed with empire, it has it, it has very little to offer the nation.
1: What was your sense in entering the election of what kind of you wanted to bring to the conversation? Is it is it what you've just described as kind of alerting people to the fact that both parties— are kind of ultimately doing the same thing? Was it sparking a different conversation? Or what were you thinking when you started was really kind of the goal?
0: Yeah, no, my goal, and this uh, I, I've laid this out in my speeches and in my talks and in my even in my book, I am absolutely convinced, based on our history, where our foundations are written on the doctrine of discovery, and we are racist and sexist and white supremacists as a nation, not in spite of our constitution, but because of it, right? Our values for racism and sexism are bipartisan, and they're built into our founding documents. I am convinced, absolutely convinced, that the United States of America needs a national dialogue on race, on gender, and on class. It's a conversation I would put on par with the truth and the reconciliation commissions that happened in South Africa, in Rwanda, and in Canada. Again, I wouldn't call ours truth and reconciliation, though, because that implies there was a previous harmony. I would call ours truth and conciliation. And that's my goal. And I actually moved from the Navajo Nation to Washington DC to work on that goal. I moved in 2015 because I already knew that President Obama didn't have the political courage to bring that conversation to the table himself. Pope Francis had just come into the papacy and I and he was showing some prophetic willpower and a uh, desire to speak truth to power. And so I actually moved here thinking maybe in President Obama's last year in office and one of Pope Francis's first few years in office when he's most energetic, we might be able to get something to, to move in that direction. Well, I quickly learned that Pope Francis is actually even less courageous than President Obama is. And he is as good of a politician as President Obama is and has no desire to hold the powers that be, including the Roman Catholic Church, responsible for things like the Doctrine of Discovery. And so I actually wrote, I, I, I wrote a, an article about that during his visit when he came to the United States and he was speaking in front of the Capitol building. And there was hope within the Native community that he would address the Doctrine of Discovery And at his speech, I was on the the mall watching it on the jumbotron. In his speech, he acknowledged the respect he had for Native peoples. He acknowledged the unjust history against us. And then he said to our Congress, but it is difficult to judge the past by the criteria of the present. Meaning we're not going to hold you accountable. Which not ironically, is the same thing he said about pedophile priests from the 1950s and 60s. He said, we're not going to hold these priests who committed these abhorrent acts accountable to the Me Too movement criteria of today.
2: Hmm.
0: It's like, really? Did the teachings of Jesus change in those 40 years? Right? I mean, so he lacks the courage. So I started using the language In my speeches, as I'm calling for this national dialogue on race, gender class, I'm using and I I became convinced that the best way to introduce that dialogue was through the presidency. And I use the language, I'm looking for a candidate, right? I want to find a candidate willing to address these things. Unfortunately, it wasn't going to be President Obama. So I thought maybe someone new, maybe someone a little bit younger who might be willing to do that. And then in 2016, I was at the Democratic National Convention, and that's where Cory Brooker acknowledged those three things in our foundations, but then said, but these don't detract from our greatness. And again, my heart just sunk. And it was after that that I realized, I don't think I'm going to find a candidate. I think if I want our nation to wrestle with these things at a foundational level, I'm going to have to become that candidate. And my, again, my vision was to build a nation where for the very first time, we the people actually means all the people. I had a 100-day plan. My first 100 days in office, I had a plan for removing the racism, the sexism, and the white supremacy from our foundations. And then I intended to use the rest of my time in office, whether it was four years or eight years, to move those changes Now that they were written into our foundations, into the rest of our government. Just very briefly, I'll share that plan with you if you'd like to hear it. So I've said before, our our founding documents, and I said this during my campaign, if you think our, our Constitution was written to include everybody, get into a diverse group and read the thing out loud. Right. You will be appalled at how quickly our constitution turned to racist, sexist and white supremacist. There are 51 gender specific male pronouns in our constitution. 51 he, him and his. Who can run for office, who can hold office, even who's protected. It never mentions women. It specifically excludes natives numerous times and it counts Africans as three fifths of a person. Slavery is still legal and constitutionally protected thanks to the 13th Amendment, which has a clause keeping it legal in our criminal justice system. And so, several years ago, before the campaign, I was reading the Constitution. I was appalled at what I was reading. And rather than amending it, I went through it with a strike through font. Every he, him, or his, I put a strike through font through it and replaced it either with a gender neutral pronoun or a proper noun. Every place it said natives were excluded or Africans were three-fifths. Let's just X that out. We never should have said that. The clause, keeping enslavement legal in prison, let's just take that out, right? We never should have said that. Let's just abolish it completely. I didn't change balance of powers. I didn't change checks and balances. I just removed the racist, the sexist, and the white supremacist language from our founding document. I actually made the Constitution say what most people think it says anyway. Had I been elected at my inauguration, when I have governors and senators and Congress members from around the country, I have Supreme Court justices, and I have a global audience, right? I was going to take out my draft of this Constitution, and I was going to read through it. And the first time I came to a gender-specific male pronoun, one that probably says, the president, he shall do this. I would have turned to the leaders of our country and said, certainly we can all agree this he should have been a they.
2: Hmm.
0: Certainly we can all agree that women can do this job just as well as a man can. Would have done that 51 times as I go through the document. Would have got through the part counting Africans three-fifths of a person. Certainly we can all agree this was just bad politics and we never should have said that, right? Now, not only am I pointing these things out to the leaders of our country, but I'm doing this in front of a global audience who is now going to mercilessly mock us because we claim to be the country fighting for freedom and justice, and yet our Constitution is so blatantly racist and sexist and white supremacist. After my reading of the Constitution and my getting at least nods of approval on camera from all of our leaders, they couldn't say no. I was gonna walk up to the Speaker of the House, Lay my edited constitution in front of him and say, or her, and say, I want this passed next week. Now, I'm not saying they would not have hated me. (laughs) But they would have had no choice. Right? They would have literally had no choice but to remove the racist, the sexist, and the white supremacist language from our foundations. Now, that's not going to change anything overnight. But then the next four years or eight years, however long I was going to stay in office, I could have used those years to now shepherd those constitutional changes into the rest of our laws and our case precedents and our, our, our government offices and our policies and everything else. And I truly believe, I truly believe that that could have happened. Yeah. That doesn't seem unrealistic Mm -hmm. to me. It would have been wildly unconventional, (laughs) and it would have pissed off a ton of people. I don't deny that either. But I don't think they would have had any choice but to say, yeah, we agree with you. We have to make these changes, if nothing else, so that we can maintain some shred of credibility in the rest of the globe.
1: Thank you, Mark, for for laying that out. I do think it's it's probably helpful even for people who are not imagining themselves following in your footsteps in terms of of making a run like that. It could be really helpful, I think, for them to hear the emphasis that you have on telling the truth and working for justice, not so confined by what seems practical or pragmatic, I think, in in people's various contexts in their churches and their communities that would be could, could be really helpful for them to think about the the challenge that you've given us of what would it look like to have the courage to tell the truth about this and seek real justice even if people are really upset even if it fails in certain ways um but to really seek that so thank you for that witness thank you for your wisdom in all of in this entire conversation and especially your wisdom in in helping many of us you know confront the history that that we are unavoidably a part of, but also hopefully some resources for having better conversations with people um, about that history. So thank you.
0: You're very welcome. And this was a fun conversation. Thank you for having me on. And obviously, there's a whole lot of things we could go into beyond this, right? The reason I ran as an independent was because I wanted to demonstrate how both sides are basically playing good cop, bad cop with these dehumanizing foundations. And so, yeah, there's, there's a lot of issues there, but this was a fun conversation to have. So thank you for the invitation. I'm glad I could be on with you today.
1: Of course. Thanks, Mark. The Disruptors is a production of InterVarsity Press. For more information on any IVP titles mentioned on this episode, visit ivpress.com and use code IVPOD25. That's IVPOD25 for 25% off. Sound engineering by Honest Podcasts. Our producers are Andrew Bronson, Mila Kim, Helen Lee, and Travis Albritton. Our production assistant is Isis Tolson. And I'm your host, Caitlin Schess. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the IVP YouTube channel. And leave a rating and review to support the podcast.